Well, th if the good Lord wanted us to walk, he wouldn't invent roller skates. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation, bringing in fans and critics alike and uh, and giving everyone a chance to talk about a film that really means something to them, whether it's a movie that they grew up with or something that they just really admire, anything that like, connects to them uh, on an emotional or some kind of personal level. So today, we normally really have fans and or critics, but today we have our first Cinemaholic on the Crooked wow. Table podcast. <laughs> so I'd like to uh, introduce Will Ashton. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for inviting me on the show. So we were talking about right before this, uh, you know, you and I, we, you know, I've been on Cinemaholics a couple of times with John and Maverick, but I've, uh, I've never, you and I have never really talked before. Yeah, it's very weird because for some reason, anytime you've been on the show, it's been like a week I've been on vacation or something has happened where I can't be there same time. I, I have not been avoiding you. It's just a matter <laughs> of poor timing. Yeah, so... One of these days, hopefully, we can uh, get you on while I'm also on the show. But for now, we're going to mend the gap through this podcast. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so tell the people a little bit about uh, you know we that's how you and I know each other from Cinemaholics and right. Uh, I I used to work write for WeGotThisCovered dot com. I was the TV yeah. editor there. Do you do you write for them still at all anymore or not really? Uh, not really. No, the last thing I did was I wrote a review of Venom for them back in October. They asked uh, okay. me to do that, oh, yeah, but yeah, I haven't. Right. Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to write for them yet, or uh, since then, I mean. So, uh, yeah, I, I haven't had as many chances since uh, you were on to write for them, but it's been fun. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we, I think, first heard of each other, entered each other's circles, and then, yes, and Alex from there. Right. So can you tell people who are unfamiliar with uh, with you and all your work, like, what you're up to these days, where they can find you? Yeah, for sure. Um, like you said, Cinemaholics is the weekly podcast I do with John Negroni. Uh, we just talk about the movies are coming out that week and anything else we've seen uh, as far as new releases and whatnot. And then um, I have another podcast I host monthly called Any Ogre Toots Ogre, where um, each year we take a movie to watch uh, once a month and then uh, recontextualize it. Uh, this year we're doing Garfield the movie, which has been pretty fun. We only have one episode so far, but I think it's a, a very fun premiere. And then um, I write for a bunch of different places, primarily uh, for Cinema Blend as a pop culture writer, but I also write for the playlist. Like you said, we got this covered, um, cut print film, and a few other a uh, few other locations. So, yeah, I try to keep myself as active as possible in this uh, this industry that we share. Yeah, I, I mean, as, as a fellow freelance entertainment writer, I've I, I really kind of impressed that you're able to juggle all those different gigs. It's hard uh, it's hard to find time to do <laughs> all those different things. So, props it's, to you. Yeah, it's. Thanks, man. Uh, and as far as in, in an ogre till it's ogre, I know the first. So you did Shrek, and then Cat in the Hat, and now Garfield, correct? So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, what you know? What led you to talk about uh, Garfield the movie? I know from social media and <laughs> so that you're a big fan of, of Garfield. Right. Yeah. Um, usually, uh, we started it with just movies from our childhood, uh, movies that we've kind of grown into or like kind of just have been acquainted with for most of our lives uh me and my um co-host matt serafini and so we picked uh just movies that we both watched a lot and like they're not they haven't aged particularly well but we still have this like kind of nostalgia for it so it's like a nice mix of sincerity and irony i think kind of revisiting movies that haven't aged 
particularly well Mm -hmm. but we still have like this kind of soft spot for so it's kind of a nice balance of recognizing the good and the bad of these movies that uh have um very much been out of the uh public window for a while yeah and i think that's kind of a rarity as far as there's a million movie podcasts out there uh obviously including this one but um (laughs) you usually tend to go you very rarely see one that 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 manages to toe that line between kind of like uh, how did this get made level hate watching or or sort of reverence for classics and it, it i think you guys have a, a kind of an interesting uh, approach to to the material there so yeah definitely people <laughs> Thank you. listening to the show should definitely check out uh, both cinemaholics and it ain't over till it's over will ashton clearly if you're on an entertainment website you've read some of his stuff or can find it nearby so um so that's that transitioned us into this film so when I mentioned to you, you know, I, I offered, you know, uh, put the kind of a call, an open call for guests on the show and you reached out to me. You had several different films in mind, but ultimately you arrived on this one. Um, so let's just listen to a little bit of the trailer for the, today's uh, feature presentation, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Open it, Charlie. Let's see that golden ticket. So that was a little bit of the trailer for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, directed by Mel Stewart. So, Will Ashton, why uh, why is this essentially this? You said this is basically your favorite film, correct? Yeah, this is my favorite film. So, can you elaborate on, uh, you know, tell listeners a little bit about what the film is and why you selected it? Sure. Um, so, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is an adaptation of the Roland Dahl novel of the same name. I don't know if I ever pronounce his name right. Is it Roland? I think it's Roland. Roland. It's like Ronald without the N, so I always go Roland. Yeah, I I pronounce it a completely different way every time, so I have really no clue how to do it. So I apologize to the late Roland Dahl. Uh, I can't get your name right, but I am a very big fan of his work. Um, yeah, it's uh, like a musical fantasy sci-fi uh, comedy slash horror family film that <laughs> pretty much every uh, genre right yeah it's a film that kind of uh it fits into every different little genre box but the general gist of the story is that it's a boy it's about a boy named charlie who is uh poor but he has a good heart he is very selfless he is uh caring and considerate and uh he like everyone else is a big fan of the chocolate factory nearby owned by willy wonka and uh it's owned by a recluse who has been out of the public window for at least a couple years um, due to another businessman essentially trying to take his business. Uh, but at a random moment, uh, not long after we're introduced to our characters, he discovers that Willy Wonka is opening up his chocolate factory to five random individuals who find the golden ticket inside their chocolate bars. So this like massive hysteria, like this media frenzy happens where everyone around the world is like consuming chocolate and trying to get these bars and uh, four other contestants get it. And then the fifth one, as we uh, can likely guess is Charlie. And so through his eyes, essentially we get 
our invitation into the Chocolate Factory owned by Willy Wonka, who is played by the late, great Gene Wilder. So when did you, obviously, you know, neither of us were, was, were alive when this film came out in theaters in 1971. So right. when did you, when did you first come across it? And, uh, you know, how has it been one that you just constantly revis- revisited over the years on, on DVD or like, what's your, your experience with it? I believe I mostly saw it on VHS. I definitely remember seeing it for the first time on VHS. I think I was nine when I first saw it, but I don't know exactly how old I was. I just know it was a film that... Uh, kind of similar to Wizard of Oz, another one of my favorite films, was just referenced a lot. It was just like very much a part of the pop culture zeitgeist that like everyone had basically seen and everyone kind of knew about. So um, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I do know that it was one of those movies that like instantly enchanted me. Even though at the time I would have been probably in like the late 90s or early 2000s by that age. Um, I was like still kind of enchanted like by this movie that's like several decades old by then with like outdated special effects and kind of this corny mentality. But I don't know exactly what propelled this movie to be my favorite, but especially revisiting it now for this podcast, I think there's just something about it that just kind of fits into my personality. Like we were saying, like it doesn't have like a specific genre, but like each genre it touches upon is one that I'm a big fan of. It has like kind of this like dry dark wit mixed with these kind of like fantastical wonderful elements of whimsy and like this kind of like anything can happen mentality but for me i think it really clicked for me this time that this movie is basically about movie making or like the magic of going to the movies where anyone where anyone can basically be propelled through a golden ticket into this wonderland that they don't quite know, but they get enchanted with. And like, you get propelled into like this different world where anything can happen and you kind of go along with it. And it's kind of scary. It's a little weird, but like you don't really question everything. Cause you're just kind of absorbed into it and you just keep going through. And to me, I think this movie ultimately just kind of defines everything I love about going to some movies, which is that you kind of put the world aside and you just get absorbed into like whatever the world is. And uh, I think that's why it's my favorite film. That's a really interesting read. I didn't even think about the, you know, the film as sort of a metaphor for movie making. I always saw it more as a, and obviously we'll get more into this kind of thing as we go along, but I always saw it more as like a satirical kind of social commentary on parenting. I mean, because that that's one of right, the more direct yeah. reads. But the, you know, yeah. your whole thing I, I think is is an interesting interpretation and makes a lot of sense. It's uh, you can sort of see the. Uh, the the boat ride kind of being like oh really pushing through like the the, the rough spots in the production process yeah. or something uh yeah that's, and that's an interesting that's an interesting take um for me i mean i i'm i'm in my 30s i'm in my mid-30s or so now so uh i probably saw it a lot on vhs or just like on cable like tnt and things like that it was i feel like one of those films as you're mentioning like wizard of oz that just was kind of always around it's just you feel like you you feel like you were came out of the womb already knowing pure imagination and like you know because it was <laughs> such a at that point had become so iconic and that's the funny thing because this was the film was a, a, a flop when it hit theaters in 71 oh really yeah it was not really oh, wow. that successful um uh, i think it just kind of Wizard... uh, excuse me? i was gonna say oh, go ahead. i was gonna say uh wizard vaz was also a flop so i don't know what it is about these iconic movies uh you know kind of like it's a wonderful life like all these movies that we just associate with like like every films everyone has seen for some reason just didn't make their money back, I guess when they should have. Yeah. But Oh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to see. And I don't think this really 
I mean, people don't really have, we don't have video stores anymore, so I don't think this really happens anymore where a film comes out and is really discovered in the same way. I, I think right. it's really much more word of mouth or social media, that kind of thing. But it just mm-hmm. used to, you know, you go to like a Blockbuster or wherever on a Friday, Saturday night, and be like, oh, Willy Wonka, let's rent that again. And then just that's how you be- develop relationships with films. And uh, so, yeah, I mine was kind of similar to you in that it just kind of, I, I don't think we ever even owned it on VHS. I think we just had like, taped off of television or something on on uh on a video um so yeah very similar to you as far as being kind of around it and stuff and uh you know i think it, the the confluence of genres definitely it feels like it feels like the type of film that not only isn't made anymore but there aren't really a lot of analogs to it uh other than films from either that era or earlier you know mm-hmm uh, I feel like now the industry is so set on well this is a this is a drama this is a sci-fi this is a horror and it doesn't really play in that sandbox as much as it used to. Yeah, this movie takes risk in a way that I noticed a lot more this time. Like I think it kind of took for granted like you know, it's not really clear like what happens to the kids like Yeah, exactly. four or, or like at least four of our main protagonists might be dead. Like we don't know. Like, in, Willy Wonka is kind of lackadaisical about that as well. It's like, you know, I don't know, maybe they died in the furnace. Who knows? <laughs> and it's, like, so willing to kind of take that risk and be dark in that way that I feel like a lot of movies now... Like, even the um, uh, remake of Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. like, they kind of uh, didn't... Like, it was a little weird and stuff, but it did feel a little safer than this film comparatively. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've seen the, the remake uh, a lot as well. Uh, I obviously think this is a, a better film, but we'll probably yeah. mention the first half of this movie, actually. And I think it's kind of starting with the Candyman sequence all up until because we don't see Gene Wilder until I think about 40. I think I wrote it down even like 44 minutes into the movie or something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I watching it again as an adult because I hadn't seen it all the way through in, in many years. I'd forgotten how much buildup there is before you actually get to the factory. Because it's almost right. half the movie of you know uh, everybody searching for the tickets and things like that. How do you how do you feel about the the first half of the film, the music, and kind of the development there, uh, and all, as well as the fact that I think the first half really focuses much more on satirizing the kind of media circus surrounding it and uh, creating this world where everybody searching for uh, golden tickets is kind of like the top news story. Yeah, no, I do think. Um... There's there is quite a few stuff, quite a few things from the first half that I had forgotten about, like you, uh, until I rewatched it. I remember I didn't realize like there were so many like comedic skits like during the media yeah. fr- frenzy that you're talking about. Like um, I don't know if those are like British comedians, like the guy who's like trying to get the computer to figure it out. Like it seems like they're probably more famous in the 70s than they were now, so I didn't really recognize who they were. But, um, yeah, I, I found that stuff funny. I, I really enjoyed the one, uh, probably the darkest joke in the movie, which is the uh, woman who uh, lost her husband and, like, the negotiator's trying to get uh, the ransom of, like, the chocolate bars for it. Right. And it's like, well, how long do I have? How long do I have? This? <laughs> that was pretty. That was great. Um, yeah, like, stuff like that. Like, I didn't really appreciate that as a kid, but rewatching that now, I'm like, oh, that's, that's good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, like, there's a couple things I noticed in the beginning that, like, I guess there would be plot holes that I didn't really take into account until now. Like, if Grandpa Joe hasn't left the bed in 20 years, how does he get his tobacco and that chocolate bar for Charlie? Like, how did that happen? That's a good point. Um, yeah. Um, like, little things like that. 
uh, don't quite work as well. But I still really enjoy the first half. I think you need that kind of uh, uh, world building as far as like how big of a deal this is. But you also just need to establish Charlie as a kid who, uh, above all else, is really sincere and sweet. But he has conflicting feelings. Like there are times where you see him like upset about this like he kind of feels like he is entitled to this in some way but not necessarily that like he's gonna make a like a hissy fit like um some of the other kids <laughs> but like he just like he is so earnestly wants this thing he like wants something good not only for himself but for his family because he's been met with so many hardships in life and um yeah i mean i i do think when gene wilder comes into the fold that's when the movie really becomes truly magical mm-hmm. but i do really enjoy the first half as far as how it sets up this world that we live in in this movie i mean it, it, it's you're right it does a pretty good job also of of setting up charlie's motivation i mean in the candy man scene that the store owner is basically i mean i'm have to assume he's going out of business after giving basically everything in his store away to these kids yeah um, he's the and then you see his uh flawed business practices for sure yeah exactly and then you see charlie i think in the window kind of looking in like because basically he's living essentially the most desolate life uh where yeah. they're just having um, cabbage water every every night for dinner and right um, I did get some amusement out of like how in that first scene he was like just giving out candy willy nilly, but uh, like when Charlie was just starting to eat the chocolate, he was like very insistent about the money. He's like, "Oh, now you care about the money." Yeah, exactly. What the <laughs> like, heck? Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Maybe that's like some uh, social commentary there, like classism or something. I don't quite know. Maybe that's a, that's <laughs> could be a good point. Um, uh, I also liked the fact that it, it's interesting because he's got four grandparents, but you we the other three essentially get no development. So it's like you know in a world full of bedridden grandparents you know be be a grandpa joe i guess is kind of the message yeah. of the film he's supportive of charlie he seems to be the only one that's really there for him and the other ones are just kind of lazing about uh and you know i really like uh, jack albertson's performance as well as as grandpa joe uh, i think he's probably oh, other yeah. than charlie and maybe i guess willy wonka he's the only one that really gets a uh, significant kind of significant more development than uh then, you know, because everybody else is just there as a function of the plot. Yeah. I don't know if, I mean, has he been in, I'm sure he's been in another notable roles, but to me, he's always just been that part. Yeah. Like, I don't even think of that as a performance. I just think of that as Uncle Joe. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it he embodies that character so much in a way that feels, I mean, I, he is so crucial, I think, to the film's success, and he probably gets overlooked in the scheme of things. Uh, just because, I mean, I understand, you know, like Gene Wilder's performance is the one that really shines the most, but and Charlie as well, you know, being our child protagonist. But uh, yeah, Uncle Joe, he he brings so much of that, like, he is like a child at heart, but he also has that father mentality, especially because in this version, Charlie's father is not in the picture. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, I think that performance is so fantastic. And in both versions of the story too, he, he gives the uh, exposition as far as what happened with the chocolate factory. Uh, I think in the other one, he used to work there. And then in this, you know, you have that scene where he explains, oh, he locked it up and, and the backstory mm-hmm. with Slugworth and all of that, really just kind of setting the stage. And I thought Peter Ostrom as Charlie, who I think this is the only film he really did after this. He's yeah. became a veterinarian when he grew up and stuff. I think uh, yeah. he, he really captures thought- that earnestness as well. I thought he was like a farmer or something. Yeah, I knew he like just left the business altogether. Um, but yeah, he uh, ironically enough, I think I saw like a video of him earlier, and he has like this big Grandpa Joe mustache. Yes, yeah. And, and I'm like, absolutely. And it's like, oh, how the 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 wheel of time turns. 
and uh but yeah no i i do really enjoy his performance i hear i don't know sometimes when i hear chris's the film i hear it directed towards his performance i never really felt those were earned yeah i feel like he really captures that wide-eyed sincerity that the, the part needs and i feel like most criticisms might be directed towards the character itself being like you know maybe a little too naive or a little too uh goody two-shoe but i just think that's what the part demands like i think you know, I mean, I'm not going to say Charlie's the most complex character, but I do think there is hidden nuance that his performance brings. But I also think that he does exactly what the part needs it to be. Yeah, Charlie's just supposed to basically be a, a good, honest kid. And that's that's right. essentially, you know, with the point that the end of the film really drives home. It just, you know, it so happens that good, honest people sometimes aren't the most interesting to watch. I mean, that's you right. see that in a lot of films, actually. Uh you know, for instance, uh, I mean, nothing's coming behind. Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. Is, yeah, Star- exactly. That's a, that's a perfect example. Look at Luke Skywalker in that first movie. Uh, you know, everybody else is more compelling to watch. He spends half of it whining about power converters and right. <laughs> and things like that until he, he uh, hooks up with uh, Han Solo and stuff. So um, I also really, you know, in a modern era, I thought, uh, looking back on the film, I thought Wonka's like is such a marketing genius. It was basically the Steve Jobs of oh, chocolate. Oh yeah, you know how how I can only imagine how astronomically sales of all Wonka chocolate went through the roof after he yeah. announced this thing. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking that a lot this time as well. Like, man, that's such a brilliant marketing move. Like, I I know like his main intention was finding the perfect heir to his company, but I'm sure he did not uh, hate those paychecks that came in from this marketing scheme for sure. Yeah. So I wonder what he would have done if all five of those kids had been brats. Because, <laughs> well, I I think it's implied that like he just would have done it again. Maybe not immediately, but like, because I mean like. That's a huge risk, right? Yeah, like they're like exactly. I mean, I think the number is exaggerated, but they said that there's a hundred billion people in the world. I I don't even think there's a hundred billion people in the world now. No, exactly. Yeah. But um but like just like the idea, like I mean that's the other thing too, like you kinda have to like forgive the movie for like like they're all English speaking uh individuals and stuff like that. Like I think they're primarily from America and Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's one like I think Augustus from Gloop uh, is like is he... German is the only one I think yeah. right oh yeah it's true but he speaks English right. yeah so um, or at least like uh, enough of uh, it uh, yeah right so um, yeah I mean there's like little stuff like that like you just kind of have to excuse a movie for I think in order to buy into it but I've never really had that issue like it's just something about the movie again that I think uh, like even though like you could like nitpick stuff like that for days I just think the movie works like it just invites you in despite those quibbles you might have initially it's also kind of jarring to the the cuts back and forth because basically they have a sequence where a ticket's found and then a, a, a ran like you were saying a random like sketch like you got the the guy uh in the therapist's office saying oh i dreamt mm-hmm. about where the tickets found uh, where the next ticket was going to be found he's like tell us where's where was it found he's like, trying to get the location um I, but I, yeah. I especially liked the uh the newscaster who's saying about oh you know oh, i yeah. guess it's been, the tickets last ticket's been, been found or but you know at least just, just focuses on uh, the fact that there's more important things out there yeah. i can't think of any of them offhand but right yeah. <laughs> it was like that's amazing um yeah i also uh there's like a very like weird cut in that scene too that like could have been jarring but for some reason just works perfectly like he just like goes back to telecast right in a way like it cuts it off like mid-sentence but it just works so well yeah that was great um so i guess we should we could kind of go through each of the uh, the other four kids and kind of take them little by little before we really get to the uh, the introduction of Willy Wonka himself. So to me, I've always been try- I always try to read an analog into uh, 
the four other kids and the basically like the the sins or the lessons that they're trying to impart on as far as the, the parenting part of it and this was before i was mm-hmm. a parent i was always i always like you know saw augustus gloop as basically representing i guess gluttony or or like you almost right. like it's almost like a seven situation here a little bit yeah it's like, it is don't raise your it kids is. to be yeah. gluttonous or greedy or you know mm-hmm. slothful mm-hmm. or whatever um right so they, we knew augustus gloop first and obviously i think he's most obvious you know mostly supposed to be gluttony but with some greed thrown in um and then that's when we start seeing everybody getting approached by quote slugworth um how do you feel about i, I mean augustus gloop doesn't really have much to do in this film he's just eating Not and really. then falls into the chocolate river basically right he's basically just a german stereotype yeah essentially which um I'd say, I, I mean, if there's anything in particular that the film didn't quite work for me, I guess it's that. Just, like, that kind of felt, like, a little too broad for my taste. Maybe just now it, it it rang a little false. But, I mean, he's such a minor character in the scheme of things. So I don't think he detracts too much from the film. Right, he's out of it pretty much, pretty fast. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Just out of it, like, in the first, like, uh, 45 minutes, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's there for the, the chocolate room sequence, and then that's uh, that's it. Which, you know, if yeah, I was going to pick one of the kids to go first, that's that's a good choice. Um, and then yeah. we get to probably, I mean, I have, not even probably, certainly the, the most interesting of the uh, bratty kids, uh, which is Veruca Salt. I mean, I, would you agree with mm-hmm. that? The most interesting? Most interesting or most memorable, at least? Yeah, for sure. I actually like that performance quite so a bit. I. I, I, yeah, I, um, and the costume design is just so on point as well. I um and she's the only Willy Wonka character to have a, a rock band named after her. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, there's a band called Veruca Salt out there. Uh, I don't even remember okay. when they were big, like in the '90s, I guess. No, like uh, yeah, no uh, band named Snozberry. Oh, there a band named Snozberry too? I don't even know about that one. I have no idea. I was just I was just joking. I don't know. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me, honestly. Yeah, this the the film has made has been such a it's such like a pop culture uh, landmark. Yeah. Um, have you ever uh, heard the real meaning of Snodsbury? I would not look it up if you haven't. <laughs> uh, no, I've not, but it's, it's sounding yeah. like it's, yeah. Uh, uh, retain your innocence, I'd say. <laughs> Don't look it up. It's probably, that's probably good advice for me and, and the listeners. Um, but I, I liked, I love Veruca Salt's performance, uh, even though, well, first of all, she's the only one of the kids to really get her own song other than Charlie. And, uh, and also she, she, like, I find, her comeuppance kind of the most satisfying because she's also the character that frustrates me the most and i think that really stems from the relationship with her and her parents and the way like as of especially now being a father it's like it drives me nuts how she's got her parents whipped and how uh they just go to such lengths to 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 do anything like you know the mother even says at one point happiness is what counts with children and i'm like no it's not what kind of bullshit is that (laughs) you know he's a Uh, who's a dad? Because he's like of the um, villainous yeah. kids' parents. He's like the most interesting. I don't know. He's probably a character actor of some kind. Yeah, I think he is. He's very expressive and like he's like always tired. It seems like, and I think he communicates what it's like to be the parent of that child oh, extremely well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she's also the only one that goes to like extensive lengths to find the <laughs> find the golden ticket. Right. Yeah. Through, I would say probably the most uh, unmoral of the. Or immoral of the uh, ways to get the chocolate. Yeah, she just basically uh, uses uh, manual labor to get it, which uh, is very cruel. <laughs> and she's also the only one, I think, when uh, when he talks about the gobstopper and makes them 
promise not to tell anyone about it. She's the only one that we see like cross her fingers behind her back. I think. Yeah, yeah. In that, in that scene as well. She's... Right. Um, so I, I think that she, to me, she's obviously kind of uh, the greediest of the bunch in that in that regard, and she's also, I think, probably the wealthiest of all the kids too. She's like the the antithesis of Charlie in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't quite know like how they acquired that much money from a nut business. <laughs> That's that's something that's uh, always kind of been left vague. I don't know quite exactly uh, how that income was earned, but yeah, they she definitely seems to be loaded. Yeah, he's it's like the Planters family or something. Right, I don't know. And um, and the other one that ties in a lot more because they actually have the squirrels instead of the the uh, the geese laying the golden eggs, and I believe that's the way it is in the book as well as the squirrels with the nuts. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was just because of um, but uh, budgetary yeah, exactly. reasons, right? I mean, the seventies. I don't think you could. I mean, because like, the the geese in the film are all puppets, mm-hmm. so I mean, I don't think you could. Ha- I mean, it would probably look way more distracting if it was like puppet puppet squirrels, uh, squirrels, or certainly not real squirrels. I don't even think they would even try that. But I just love that pun though, like that she's a bad egg. Oh I yeah, think they, the way they work up to it, 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 I, I kind of find that a little more satisfying than the nut one ultimately. So I think that's one of the changes I actually prefer. Yeah, I can see that, and I uh, the whole um, I love the Oompa Loompas com- Oompa Loompas commentary throughout. Every time one of the kids yeah gets yeah. out, and and they basically you know really beat that message through you know uh, to the audience. Mm-hmm. And the Oompa Loompa song for her is always the one that stuck with me the most, even as a kid. I'm like, you know, uh, what do you do when your kid is a brat? Uh, yeah, you know exactly who's to blame: the mother and the father. And I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Because this, mm-hmm. as you said, this movie actually is kind of some some of the points it's trying to make and the way that it, it combines sort of fantasy and horror is kind of controversial. But you know that's how that's how a lot of like quote kids movies were in like this in the seventies and eighties. I mean, I grew up with Return yeah. to Oz and like Labyrinth and Neverending Story movies that are like if you show little kids now, I don't know if they'd react the same way. Right. I mean, Roland Dahl's stuff in general, as far as it the is. ones that have been translated to films like you have like the witches which is pretty dark um i'm trying to think what else there was um uh, james the giant peach isn't that quite that dark but yeah i i do think there is something about his stuff that invites that like sense of danger which i sometimes find is lacking in a lot of kids films these days like i think you need that element because it kind of raises the stakes and it lets the younger viewers feel invested because obviously the adults know like everything's probably going to be fine right but i feel like i don't know like somebody like parents don't get concerned that like their kids are going to get scared and i think it's like i don't know i mean i can't speak i'm not a parent right. but i mean i i feel like i mean i'm not like i'm not advocating for like gruesome violence but i think <laughs> yeah. like a little bit a little bit of darkness can be can be accessible in a way that i think if you let kids have some credit and just you know invite themselves into that i think it'll work well it's also a certain level of maturity in in children's stories right. I mean, and i think that's something that you're it's trusting them. Yeah, yeah exactly you're trusting them to get it you're trusting you, you it gives you more leeway to uh to get a message across to like actually kind of educate them in a way of like the world and the dangers out there and like you know it, it imparts more wisdom on them rather than just being you know uh just you know a fun time at the movies it actually you get able to deal with more uh more substantive material like i think the only the only only things that are only brands that are coming to mind that really do that consistently are uh, Pixar a lot of times does that like a lot of those mm-hmm. movies are heavy they're not necessarily scary but they're heavy in a certain way that they have an emotional weight to them whether that's sadness or, or fear or whatever 
Uh, and like a yeah. lot of times the Leica movies, the box trolls, the paranormal and Coraline, especially things like that. They really harken mm-hmm. back to that period where, you know, you, know, you can make a, a film marketed to kids without having to, you know, have it be like trolls or the emoji movie, you know, and actually, yeah, you know, kids right. are more intuitive than I think a lot of filmmakers or studios or whoever give them credit for. And I think this this one really kind of captures that. Yeah, I mean, I think after a certain age, they know when they're being pandered to. Yeah. And I think like like even if they might like the emoji movie, like you said, at an early age, I think that that endearance is going to be short lived, I believe. I mean, you know, maybe I'm not one to talk since I do a podcast about films that maybe I should have grown out of. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like, yeah, like they're, I think movies like Pixar and like a filmography, like they stand the test of time or we talk about them for a reason. Like they, they trust the audience. They trust the younger viewers in a way that a lot of these other movies seem to be afraid of. And I think they ultimately pay the price for that. Yeah, no, I think so too. I think that, yeah, that's definitely true here as well. Um, so yeah, so moving along, Violet Beauregard, uh, she's, I don't know. She's just, what is, what is her deal? What is her deal? Do you think? Is, is it just that she's bossy? Is that she's a, an overachiever? Like what are we supposed to take away about why she's so terrible? I mean, she definitely holds grudges uh, as uh, what's her friend's name? Yeah, I don't remember. I was just trying to think of it too. I was like, no, it's not yeah, Coraline. Like she, I just said that, but it's not that, but it's yeah. Right. No, like I forget. Yeah. But she, she definitely, um, yeah. I mean, I guess her character isn't quite as uh, defined as the other ones, but um, yeah, she definitely like is a little bossy. Like she kind of like, like extends herself in a way like where she like just takes the candy without consideration she like just keeps she just wants to win um, i think and if they right. maybe it's just the element that she's kind of she's thinking like an adult instead of instead of just being a child um you know right. i did an episode of the crooked table podcast just like a few weeks ago about eighth grade and about mm-hmm. how ultimately that film ends with her uh, the main character and a friend just kind of sitting down and having having chicken nuggets and talking about Rick and Morty. And it's like, you know, you don't need to focus so much on like, Oh, I need to, I need to find a person that's going to love me. I need to find a career. I need to find like, it's your, you're a kid, chill out and like, relax, have some chicken nuggets, have a, have a play date and just calm down, calm the F down for a second, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, she, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, like I can't even imagine, uh, chewing on the same piece of gum for three months just to like stick it to your friend (laughs) And say it on television twice. Right, exactly. Like, I can't, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, she turns into a blueberry, so it all comes around. Uh, sure. <laughs> and I love, you know, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but I love Willy Wonka's sort of, oh, stop, don't, because ultimately he's yeah. like, tr- I guess, trying to make it make an, uh, make an it apparent that he's trying to tell them to stop, but ultimately doesn't give a shit if they, if what happens because right. they have it coming. Uh, you know, it's yeah. like they walked into his place and if something happens to them and they, cause they don't heed his warnings, it's their fault. Like all these kids brought upon their own sort of destruction Yeah, and he just put, mean, put them in the circumstance to do that, I guess. And I mean, he, I guess he expects it because every time like he like goes on the boat, there's only like the number of seats or the number of people who are left. Yeah, that's a good point. Or like, um, um, the bubble machine or whatever that is. Uh, like there's only four seats in that. So like, I guess he expected it. I don't know what he would have done if like they had passed the test longer than he anticipated, but I think that kind of adds to like this kind of uh, whimsical factor to it. Like he is, he is like this all knowing mentality where like he, he invites spontaneity and he like, kind of has like this improv style where he like is clearly well read. Cause he like references like 
uh, different things that clearly go above the head of, the, of our uh, other characters. But um, yeah, I, there is something about that that I find massively appealing. Yeah, I, I sort of saw a little bit of a comparison with Willy Wonka and Mary Poppins and that they're both this kind of magical, mysterious characters that uh, come into kids' lives. And in Mary Poppins, both films, she's really trying to help them work through a tough time or get that family back in sync. And here he's just kind of like uh, a reverse Santa Claus. Like he's the, uh, the Krampus. He comes in and like punishing yeah. the children, but uh, you know, kind of comes in, does his thing, teaches kids lessons or whatever, and then pieces out. And I think that's, right. that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Cause you yeah. know, my daughter would been, she's been obsessed with the Mary Poppins returns soundtrack. So we've been listening to that a lot. Okay. So I just, it's happened to be in my head these days. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so, okay, lastly, we meet Mike TV, who is, uh, as his name implies, kind of obsessed with TV, and apparently he's going to get a, uh, a Colt 45 when he's 12 years old, so that that sounds healthy. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> was, like, was uh, Jesus Christ. That was a joke I forgot, yeah. <laughs> that's hardcore. Um, yeah, uh, I, mean, I, that's a, I mean, I'm sure Roland Dahl just hates Americans, because it seems like his commentary on them is very snifeful. Stop watching TV, based yeah. On, yeah, based on Mike TV's character. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could read into the the, the gun thing, the, the cowboy hat, the like, uh, fame hungry. Like, he wants to be the first to do everything. Yeah, I think that's that, mm -hmm. that's he's he's kind of, uh, you know, your dirty American. I guess is kind of the comparison for for Mike TV. Yeah, like kind of uh, polluted by the media yeah. and like uh, immoral values and like yeah, all that stuff. Uh, okay, so then. Uh, I the other thing too is that not only does the movie I think get way more interesting when Willy Wonka comes into it, which we're about to get to that obviously, but the mm -hmm. um, the music gets a, a lot better. Like Mrs. Bucket, I even forgot that she has a whole song about oh, about really? yeah she's because she's got that cheer up Charlie song. Oh yeah, I love that song, but it's an unpopular opinion I guess. I don't know. I really like that song, but I guess a lot of people consider that among the weaker ones. Yeah, I just I forgot that he was even in there because it feels. Oh. Uh, Again, I I kind of compressed away a lot of the uh, a lot of the pre Willy Wonka stuff just because I feel like it, the film mm -hmm. uh, sort of ascends to a higher plane soon after you know as soon as he shows up. Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember that song. I just I do think though that it was I thought it was earlier in the film than mm -hmm. it ultimately was. Like I thought it was in like the first like fifteen or twenty minutes. I didn't realize it was like pretty much thirty minutes into it. But yeah, no, I'd love that song for sure. <laughs> I, I do really like the way that Charlie, uh, not only does he find the last ticket as everyone kind of assumes, but um, I like the song that he has about that. But I also like the the way that, um, you know, the last chocolate bar or the last golden ticket is found and then ends up being a fake. I like that that misdirect almost mm -hmm. makes you doubt for a second. Like, yeah. wait a minute, well, is he going to get the last ticket? Because uh, how do you... For sure, yeah. yeah. So I, I like that that's a little bit of... Uh, kind of toying with our expectations for a moment where you almost sort yeah. of doubt that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and like, I, I mean, obviously, you know, he's going to get the chocolate bar or the ticket in the end, but that scene where he's in bed and just crying it, I don't know. It really hit me this time. I don't know. Like it, I think that's a credit to the kid's performance, but yeah, you feel like that, like weight of it, like you, you understand completely how much this means to him and that it's his ticket to a better life and stuff. And that he really, I, like more than any other character in this film wants it for unselfish reasons and that like he's not only upset for himself but like because he feels like his family has no other option and uh yeah i think that was a great decision on the creative's part yeah it's like grandpa joe said a little boy needs something to hope for it's it's, it's more right it's more than just a lifetime of chocolate to him it's like 
something yeah. different, something, you know, brighter, you know, their home is so desolate and, uh, you know, they don't, he doesn't have his father there and they're, right. like, and I said, having cabbage water every night, like to the point that, um, a loaf of bread is, is a banquet at some, uh, as the mom says. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Slugworth approaches looking all judge doom with his glasses and his, uh, black ensemble. So that was, that's another element that's not in the book that they added in there. I guess it's unclear if Roald Dahl added that or if it was added more in rewrites. Cause uh, I, you know, that that's really becomes the, uh, if the film has kind of an overarching plot, it, I guess it is the, the Slugworth uh, trying to, you know, uh, intercept Monka's uh, gobstopper formula. Uh, how did you, yeah. how do you feel about that being kind of the through line and the, you know, the fact that, the fact that Grandpa Joe is the one that that almost kind of tells, uh, kind of goads Charlie at the end about taking the gobstoppers. Like, we'll show him. We'll go give that to to, uh, right. uh, to Slugworth. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think something I noticed this time more than uh, previous showings was that, like, how comically evil Slugworth mm-hmm. works. Like, he has, like, that, like, stereotypical, like, scar on his yeah, cheek yeah. and, like the like sharp cheekbones and like the like kind of menacing like uh uh attire and stuff but uh, as a character i mean i like him he's fine like i I don't think he's by any means one of my favorite characters but uh just the way he kind of carries himself and like kind of like speaks in very uh specific dialect and like just kind of like menaces the characters but he doesn't really threaten them per se and it's very uh uh, specific in the same way Judge Doom is. I feel like Zemeckis saw this. I was like, okay, that's what we're going to do with Judge Doom. We're going to copy sure. this design that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and roll with it that way. Um, so then, of course, uh, Gene Wilder enters, like I said, 44 minutes in. And, uh, you know, instantly kind of make makes a tremendous impression. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard that the idea to come out and do the little, you know, walk with a cane and do that little fall and kind of somersault deal that that was Gene Wilder's uh, idea. Mm-hmm. He actually insisted on doing, making that his entrance because it would throw the audience off balance. And then for the rest of the film, right. you wouldn't know if he was lying or, or telling the truth. And, and it really kind of Im- imbued sort of a, uh, a sense of unpredictability with that character. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you think about uh, his entrance and just like his bitchin' little purple jacket and everything? Um, and the fact that he's has like a, this courteous air about him, but you could see in his in his wild eyes that something else is going on beneath the surface. Yeah, no, I think it's a perfect entrance for a character, and I really, I, it's easily one of my favorite parts of the movie, and I can definitely see how it was Gene Wilder's influence, and I think it was a fantastic decision on his part because, like, yeah, like because if you think about it from the perspective of the other characters, like that might have been the first time they've ever seen. Willy Wonka ever yeah like they just know him as this like recluse living up in uh his uh chocolate factory and just kind of doing his thing and then like you like see him he looks like he's like this kind of frail guy who doesn't you, you don't really know what to make of him and then like yeah like the way the cane sticks in and the way that Gene Wilder executes that flawlessly I I think it's a fantastic opening for who is ultimately our title character of the film exactly and uh, the fact that when you go in the when they go in the factory, everything is like they can't find the door out because it ends up being where they can't yeah. like everything. You never know if he's really lost control of the situation, if something's going mm-hmm. wrong or if it's all part of the plan, which ultimately it ends up being that that's the case. Um, yeah, um, especially like that closed corridor, like with like the stripe print yes. 
walls and like that that kind of lends like the early horror element of it like it kind of has like this like phantasm like eeriness like what's going on like who who is this madman yeah i I love that scene and uh i liked it i liked when he said you got to go forward to go back uh yeah i was like okay so it's so the 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 chocolate factory is basically like ikea you just have to keep walking through it otherwise you're stuck (laughs) in this maze forever right um and and, you know he has such he, he brings like the childlike wonder and passion for chocolate and for candy uh but also has like this mischievous wry air to him i mean i think i i think his performance is ultimately what, what makes this movie i mean for me the first half is is solid but it's when he comes in it's it it's it goes up like a whole star level as far as far mm-hmm. as rating for me um just because yeah. he brings so much to the part uh that you know especially con- contrasted with johnny depp's uh Johnny Depp's quirkier, more off-putting um, turn as the character. I think, you know, he he inherently has that. Gene Wilder just inherently had this warmth about him. Just you know, watching the documentary on the DVD and like him talking about, he really he really loved uh, this film and he really loved the performance. He really kind of he was fine with this being uh, the role that he was associated with for the rest of his career from this point on. And this is only a few years after you know the producers and bonnie and clyde when he really kind of broke on the scene yeah was this um before or after blazing this saddles is, uh, and young frankenstein this is before yeah this is before both of those okay yeah wow yeah i wasn't quite sure where that was in the timeline but um yeah no i i will always i think for uh, always associate gene wilder with this part and i think there is always going to be a part of me that sees gene wilder as willy wonka i i think he plays the part beautifully and I do think that, I mean, it is thanks to him that this movie is as iconic as it is. And sure, I mean, it's not like exactly what it's like in the text, but if it was going to be that, it would basically be like, because in the in the book, he's like a, like a short guy with like a big top hat. He's essentially, he looks like um, Danny DeVito and Big Fish. Like nice. that's like the look of Willy Wonka in the books. Um, and I, I feel like, yeah, I, I can see maybe some purists of Roland Dahl don't, think it's quite accurate but for me it's it's the perfect part for him and i think he plays it uh to the nines and i i I love like every little improv that he puts in there and i think like you said like it it feels very heartfelt like i think a big reason the movie has such a big beating heart is because of that performance he gives so much of himself to the part in a way that feels completely honest and loving and uh even though there is like this kind of cruel cynicism to the text i think he kind of balances that quite uh fantastically and i i would say that a big reason why this movie is one of my favorites is because of him for sure yeah i, I agree with that 100 percent. same here he's he's definitely like on the super on the surface level he does come off as a little bit of a a little bit of a sadist with the kids like he almost yeah. kind of is like oh too bad well you know maybe that yeah. furnace might, might not bad, be lit so yeah exactly <laughs> like he doesn't he doesn't give a fuck yeah. about these kids and I, and I found it hilarious right um from from the yeah, satirical yeah. standpoint i mean Right, but I mean, to the his credit, I mean, he doesn't actively get the kids in right, trouble. Right, like course. they always do it on their on their own volition. Like, yeah, I mean, he he get he gave him a dangerous playground to play in, but he's always like, hey, I wouldn't do that. Like you were saying earlier, like yeah, I mean, like I wouldn't go in there if I were you, or like yeah, you better want to get out of that. But yeah, it, it's always their fault ultimately, and, whatever danger they get in. But yeah, and the parents never back Willy Wonka up and say no, don't touch that. They're like, yeah, you go for it, sweetheart. Yeah. You you try that uh, that whatever the forget what he calls the the whole meal that's in the gum that mm-hmm. she's like oh what is next you know and uh, that drives me nuts mm-hmm. um and in, in case you yeah. didn't 
pick up on the warmth of that's in that that he brings to the character. Then he has pure imagination when they go in the the chocolate room right. and everything, and that's just that's just a perfect song. I mean, it's it it's is. far it's and great. away the the most memorable of the ones in this film, uh, and the you know the one that's been covered outside of the movie. Like that's that's you know that's a song that has really endured uh, as both part of the film, but also kind of on its own as just like a a classic uh, a classic movie song. Yeah, I mean that scene's so fascinating because I mean, especially as we get uh, as the movie gets older, it's more apparent that that's such a big set. Like everything is made out of cardboard and plastic and stuff like that, and it would be very easy to not buy into that. But that song and just the way the the music swells and just the the sweetness that Gene Wilder brings to that performance and just the way it's executed is just it's perfect. And I love the way it starts with uh, him saying, you know, like this is where my dreams become realities, so my realities become dreams. That's where my thesis ultimately kind of comes into play because I think that to me just represents like what movies are. Hopefully, you know, like they they're kind of making the ideas in your mind because movies are in a sense dreams and you're just making them in reality. And then that to me is like where the movie fully becomes, I think my favorite film. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's the moment in the film for sure. Like if uh, that's, that's where you, you realize if you either love this film or if it's not working for you is in, in right. that, in that sequence for sure. Um, and you know, the fact that the, I read that uh the actors coming into the set, that was the first time they actually saw the set too. So that's all their genuine reactions to yeah. it. Uh, the fact that, you know, everything is so detailed and eatable or edible, as he says. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I agree. I think, and, and you're, you're making another, again, you make another good point about the movie making part of it. That's probably the largest set on the film and it's also like literally like him mm -hmm. like come in let me show you the set of this largest set in this film and all the stuff that we did to make this feel real uh yeah. i think that's that's an interesting read i really it's fascinating uh i never thought of it that way before um and then uh let's see let's just, the oompa loompa songs we talked about those are pure pure fire uh everything they say is just awesome oh yeah uh, that's amazing that's uh yeah, and I was going to say, I think that's one of the things that um, I like the least about the Charlie and Chaco factories. That, with the exception of maybe like one or two, like the Willy, or the uh, Oompa Loompa songs are not very memorable in the remake. Like, they're, I can barely remember like how they go. And like, I, I think Danny Elfman had fun making them, but they're just not, they're not as like earworm catchy as the Oompa Loompa songs. Or it's just like, like, especially the, like you said, like the Violet one and the Augustus one, like they're just, they're great. I, I, they bring so much energy and uh, dark sadistic uh, joy in each moment they're in, they're in the film. I, I always get a kick out of those scenes. So we have to talk about the, the boat ride. <laughs> oh yes, of course. There's no earthly way of knowing uh, what direction they're going. So uh, what, first of all, what do you, what did you think of, what do you think of that sequence uh, and what do you what do you think is going through Willy Wonka's mind? Like, is it because it kind of seems to me like it's another way of just kind of spooking them, like to test their 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 metal to see if they're willing to, mm -hmm. to back away from the fa factory rather than perps persist in order to get their hands on the gobstoppers and, and all his secrets. Uh, what do you, what do you make of that sequence? Yeah, I mean it it is foreshadowing. Like, there is no earthly way of knowing which way we are going. It's just them, him being like, there's going to be a lot of dark stuff coming up. I hope you're ready for it. And I mean, like, uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'd have to check to see um, as far as the execution, like if because um, like when they look at the wall and they see something, yeah. I don't know if it's the order that they disappear or not. 
I'd have to check that mm. for sure. I haven't really taken that into account, but yeah, I, I think it, it sets up perfectly what is about to happen for these uh, misbehaving kids and like, you know, like, you know, kind of getting you into once again, like, like how we're introduced a character in this kind of way. That's like, you don't know what quite to expect. Like, Hey, you know, like a lot of, it's going to get darker from here. I hope you're ready for it. Here we go. Which could, so I, I always, which could be, oh, sorry, which what? could be sort of to, to go to your, your interpretation could be sort of the filmmaker being getting audience, like prepping audiences for like the dark twists to come. Like you could almost yeah. imagine like Hitchcock popping out and, you can almost imagine him popping up like right before the shower scene and be like, all right, get ready. Here it comes. Yeah. And uh, I think it's ultimately, though, I, I, going back to Gene Wilder, his performance in that scene is just brilliant. Oh, I love it's, that. It's awesome. So awesome. It's, it's hilarious. Though. Yeah. And the fact his line reading in particular is just this is fantastic. I and like. I always forget the, the scream that he does at the end of his little. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the, the yeah, fact that that um, sequence comes right before the inventing room, I think, really kind of, uh, and the fact that Slugworth's face is part of the images that they see, as Charlie points out, I yeah. think, uh, really kind of, you know, it feels, it, it makes it feel like it's part of the ongoing narrative and not just a random aside, you know. Yeah, you brought up Pitchcock. I I I think less of a Psycho in that scene, more like Vertigo. Right. Yeah, like that scene with like uh, like because like the way is like like his face is illuminated and like all this like swirling darkness and stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, a good that's a good sure. call. It's very psychedelic in a lot of ways. Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. Um, so then we go into the inventing room and he's got all the puns, the hair cream, and <laughs> this this is too cold. Yeah. And he throws a coat in there, which you know, as as a, a writer yeah. and a person that loves like words and double meanings and homonyms and all that, that's, yeah. that was great. The the, the shoes, the, the, uh, the, the yeah, shoes, the give a kick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was great. Um, yeah. We get the uh, the condescending Wonka meme, which who knew who knew oh, that that yeah, was yeah. going to be a thing that. Um, mm-hmm. it just, yeah. Okay. I mean, we've, we're really, we've kind of touched on a lot of this already. Uh, so the fizzy lifting drink scene, uh, I feel, feel conflicted about that. Cause one, it wasn't in the yeah. book and I know Raul Dahl doesn't, did not like that. Did you, do you think that that actually enriches Charlie's character, uh, in that, you know, he, he's, it also show, it shows that he's also not perfect or do you feel like it kind of detracts from the fact that he's as Wonka says at the end, you know, he's an honest, he's looking for a good, honest boy to, to take over the factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you, I've kind of mixed feelings about mm-hmm. it. I, I think in the moment I find it kind of uh, wonky just cause like, um, no pun, I guess with wonky <laughs> there. Um, yeah, uh, it, it just feels a little forced for like grandpa Joe to just be like, Oh, here, let's have this fizzy lifting drink. Like it didn't really feel like earned in that moment. And I just feel like, um, how like the rest of the kids and Willy Wonka, I mean, obviously Willy Wonka knows, but how like the rest of them like didn't notice they were gone. Like, what were they doing? Were they just in that, the room with the geese or like they go into a separate room? Like, I don't quite know what happens there, but, um, it feels like a scene no, I think it all... later. Like, like it was like, it, it, it doesn't, yeah, feel like it, it probably was a rewrite for sure. Um, but, uh, I think ultimately it works for that final scene. Cause I do think, the movie works better when you have that kind of confrontation where it's like, you lose. Good day, sir. I feel like that works better than like, oh, we're out of kids. Well, then you win, Charlie. <laughs> like, it feels, I think it's more emotionally satisfying with that scene. So I ultimately forgive the fizzy lifting drink scene. But for me, it's probably the weakest in the factory. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's the most problematic in the factory. The one scene that I just don't understand what, what the point of it is, is the Wonka wash probably similar to like the skits during right. the um chocolate or ticket fighting scene it's probably there for filler 
Like, I, I don't think there's, like, a deep uh, thematic reason for it, but I do enjoy it. I think it's, as like, a silly, yeah. like you said, like, it's, like, a special effects-laden scene where, like, it's just kind of them showing off a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, no, I think it's fun. Like, and then like when even the characters kind of call that out, like, why do we do that? <laughs> I just wanted to have some fun. That's kind of my interpretation yeah, of that no, scene. That's a good point. The, the Mike TV thing, since we were before, one thing I wanted to mention is that I, I just I never noticed this before, but obviously he shrunk down to be super tiny because he has to be the first person sent to, you know, traveling by television. Mm-hmm. Um, so they send him to the taffy pulling machine, but I forgot that there was this little uh, exchange with the Oompa Loompa where he's like, no, I won't hold you responsible. Yeah, yeah, I won't hold you accountable. It's like it's all good if the kid doesn't make it. It's yeah. not on you. Uh, they signed, yeah, they signed this exactly, contract yeah. with really small print that they didn't right. even know what they were getting right. themselves into. Um, yeah, and that's how you know he's a businessman. Exactly, he's got it because he has a contract like that. He's got to cover his ass um, ultimately. Right. So that brings us, I think, to the the you know as you mentioned, good day, sir. The big scene there. I, I like. I really like that that uh, that turn where. Uh, Grandpa Joe is, is well, we'll bring this to uh, to Slugworth. And then Charlie doesn't feel right about that. And so he goes back and puts the gobstopper. If he hadn't done that, do you think that would have been it with Charlie, right? I mean, he basically redeemed himself in the last mm-hmm. second. Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately the test, though. Mm-hmm. And I think he he proved it. Like, he, he did one final act that could have, you know, I mean, it would have been selfless of him to take it and sell it and probably help his family. But ultimately, it was more selfless for him to give it back even though he has in a vulnerable position where he has every right to you know because this guy just yelled at him and like berated him and you know kind of uh took him in took him down a few pegs and uh ultimately though it's just a test of his character like even despite um the odds he proved that he is truly selfish self selfless and cares about the well-beings of others and he proved that he is the rightful heir for the Wonka factor. Yeah, and then Wonka even apologizes that I, oh, I'm sorry, I had to put you through right. that and all that. And then of course we get right. the, uh, oh man, the uh, what is it, the Wonka Vader? The glass yeah, elevator, which yeah. was the whole title of the second book, the sequel to this. Right. That I guess they didn't make because of legal reasons, is what I heard. Um, so that for that, um, that scene in the 70s or for the after uh, the yeah, I think I think uh, in the 70s for sure. I don't know about the 2001, oh, okay. but like, you know, Roald Dahl, who obviously disowned this film for various right, reasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that maybe they needed his state's involvement or whatever to make that happen. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but so we get the Wonka Vader and then that last, uh, the last line that Gene Wilder says, which again, in this whole scene in the elevator as it's going through and they're saying, oh, we're going to be cut to ribbons. And he's like, probably. And he has that perfect <laughs> balance between like excited and kind of manic. Uh, like he's just like... Uh, charismatic madman i guess is the best way to to kind of um, distinguish him even though he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen he's always been kind of like one step ahead every moment before that one but like at that moment that's like the first time it's like i generally don't know what's going to (laughs) happen but i hope we make it out alive and yeah there is like kind of enthusiasm or that like exhilarance there it's like oh yeah like this man just kind of like flies on the seat of his pants this is the first time we really see him like completely unknowing of what's going to happen next right and that uh, that line that he says about you know what ha- you know what happened to the man who had, who got everything he ever wanted he lived happily ever after right. that was actually kind of pitched I think the David Seltzer the uncredited co screenwriter uh, and this is what I you know, what I saw in the documentary there mm-hmm. uh, he was on vacation and Mel Stewart the director called him up like hey 
I this this the script that we have right now ends with Grandpa Joe going yippee. He's like, I'm not ending the movie on that. I need a final line to wrap it up. Yeah, set. I think that's and how he the, came up with very spontaneously. I, I think that's how the book ends with yippee. Yeah, if I remember correctly, but it's been right. many years. But yeah, I, I think that ending. You know, uh, in a lot of movies that ending or that line would not work. But I think for this one, it just it, it it's that nice crescendo at the end. I think really ties it together. Well, the the movie alternates. I think between. Uh, based on the, the character of Wonka, but also just kind of the tone, it alternates between bitter and sweet, like cynical and satirical, but also heartwarming mm-hmm. and sincere. And I think, you know, it, it, it ultimately ends on the latter uh, with that line. And it makes that really, uh, you know, with the music and everything and the way that uh, the way yeah. that Gene Wilder sells that, the way the, the smile that he, he gives Charlie after and that embrace. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really, it's a really powerful yeah. kind of hair on the back of your neck kind of moment. And, and I, I love that. It's a perfect it is. ending. Yeah, for sure. Like you're saying, like, you know, the idea of parenthood often comes uh, into the film pretty, pretty much throughout. And um, at that moment, like, not only does he have everything he ever wants, he finally has a, a proper father figure. And I think that's what really kind of sells it. And like I said, I mean, Gene Wilder's sweetness throughout the movie really sells it. But I think that that earnestness is what really makes it work. Like, it doesn't feel at all like false or cynical or cheap mm-hmm. like he really feels like he's wholeheartedly in this performance and in this character and i think if it weren't for that this movie wouldn't work nearly as well as it does yeah. no i agree i agree i think that's is there anything that we haven't covered that you my only thing was that i guess to explain why i like the um cheer up charlie song mm-hmm. so much is that for me um i don't know i guess people kind of see it as pointless or I don't, i'm not quite sure why people don't like that scene but for me, it's like that moment, like you were saying earlier, like uh, everyone kind of wants to have Charlie's hopes up. Right. But the mom is the only one that's like kind of like preparing for what she sees as the inevitable, which is that like he's not going to get the, the golden ticket and like life's going to be back to normal. And she like wants him like in that scene when she's working in the factory where she's like, you know, like, you know, like there's a lot of people in the world and then like it may not work out. And she's trying to be the voice of reason. Uh, and Charlie obviously doesn't want to hear that. But, like, that song is her way of expressing, like, like I want to be like Grandpa Joe and, like, give you all the hope in the world. But I also want you to be prepared for what might be a very sad and bare life. So I think that's why I like that, that song yeah, so much. Yeah, no, that, that makes, you know, as and that's, as a parent, that's definitely something that you feel for you. You know, you always want to prepare your kids for the harsh realities of the world. And going back to your, yeah. to your read of the film, which I'm obviously very taken with, um, you know, you can almost read it as like Charlie's like, I want to be a filmmaker. And she's like, I mean, all right, you can try it. It doesn't mean it's going to work yeah. out. It's like kind of that like right. uh, supportive, but with reservations, like hope for the best, prepare for the worst, whatever cliche you, yeah. you want to throw at it. It's it's very much that and hoping to kind of mm-hmm. temper your, your child's expectations so that they don't get their heart broken, basically. So I guess going into final thoughts. What would you say to someone that hasn't seen uh, Willy Wonka? Why should they check it out? And uh, how does it hold up for you in general? Uh, well, I still think it holds up extremely well. I mean, my feelings on the film being my favorite have not been deterred. And I think, if anything, they've been renewed with this viewing of the film. So um, if you haven't seen the film, um, I mean, I think it's just best to go in as blind as possible. I don't know if you can really at this point. You know, like we were saying earlier, it's something that's so ingrained in the pop culture that I feel like similar to like Wizard of Oz or It's a Wonderful Life, you, you kind of know the story even if you haven't seen it. Right. But if you can, I think just kind of go in and give it your full heart and I think you'll be rewarded and then some from the experience. Yeah, I agree. And it's got it's got a really uh, timeless 
uh, feel to it, like like Wizard of Oz. And, yeah, uh, it, it's you know it was made in the seventies, but it it, it they um, they shot it in Munich, and they were trying very carefully to make it the city not really look like identifiable, and to have to show mm-hmm. uh, like cars and things like that you know, uh, as little as possible. And my wife even made a comment, be like, what, what is this supposed to be set? Is this supposed to be the seventies? Cause it's kind of unclear. And I think that's, that's the best yeah. movies are the ones that are able to do that. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's definitely one that I'll raise my, you know, I'll show my daughter when she gets older. And, um, it, it's, it, it has a lot of interesting things to say about parenting and I guess filmmaking. And, uh, it's, it's one of those, probably one of the most successful, genre mashups uh of this kind or of this you know this uh of this i guess genre of children's entertainment things like that and um will ashton uh tell everybody where they can find you on social media sure yeah i can be found at the will of ash on twitter um if you want to find my podcast and film writings there's that's where you can find me perfect well thank you so much for coming on the crooked table podcast this oh yeah was, thank you so this much was awesome and uh you know glad you picked this and we'll have to have you back on another time i know you mentioned some other oh. suggestions so we'll have to save some of those for a future episode oh yeah yeah i'm very glad you gave me the chance to uh check out this film again i'm glad i gave you the same experience yeah yeah thanks will if you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable of course you can always find more podcasts reviews videos and other movie related goodies over at crookedtable.com until next time this has been the crooked table podcast and i've been rob this has been a production of crookedtable.com all rights reserved the yard of a little kid